I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk this morning as we continue our study. This wonderful little prophet will be in chapter 3. You'll find that on page 786 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. And it's our goal to actually work through 15 verses this morning. So I think you'll be aided to have God's word open in your lap as we work through this, this beautiful prayer written by Habakkuk some 2,600 years ago. And uh, I think a prayer that has great relevance for our life, and hopefully God will show us. And even while we're listening to uh, God's Word this morning, it would be good for us to be mindful of Pastor Josh, who is uh, preaching just down the road at uh, Loudoun Valley uh, Baptist Church in Percival. And so in a moment, uh, I think it would be good for us to pray for him, and I trust you'll join me in that. Before we do, let's look at this passage here, beginning in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Sigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plagues followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood in their place and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Our Father, we come now and ask you for your grace upon us, that you would help us as we seek to consider your word, this, this prayer uttered long ago. I trust a prayer that you find worthy of consideration, for you have given it to us in your word. I trust it will be a blessing to us as we think about your might and your power and be an aid to us as we face this day and the days to come. And so we pray that you would come and work mightily in our own lives. We, in particular, pray for our brother Josh as he uh, preaches from the book of Malachi this morning, uh, just a couple miles down the road. We ask that you would equip him to declare your word and apply it to your people, that 
he, through, through you, would be a blessing to Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. And we pray for that congregation. And so that you would continue to guide our brother Jacob as he pastors there. And that you would prosper that church and grow it. That they too would make disciples for the glory of God, even as we seek to do so now. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata is a, a Christian author, a wonderful Christian author. has blessed many people. Uh, if you know anything about her, you know that she is a woman who has lived in suffering. It was about four decades ago on uh, vacationing out in the eastern shore. As a teenager, she underestimated the, or overestimated, I should say, the depth of the water as she dove into the ocean, uh, striking the bottom of the seafloor and breaking her neck. She's lived as a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, for the last 40 years. Uh, a little while ago, she was interviewed by Larry King when he was still doing uh, his show. And uh, the transcript of her interview uh, reads as such. She said to Larry, I wake up in the morning many times, and I hear my girlfriend come in the front door. And she'll be running water for coffee in the kitchen, and I know she's going to come in my bedroom in a minute. She's going to give me a bed bath, get me dressed, sit me in a wheelchair, brush my hair, brush my teeth blow my nose. And there are times I'm still having my eyes closed thinking, God, I have no strength for this. I can't face this. I can't. I have no resources for this. I have no smile for this woman. But whenever I feel this way, I go to the Lord Jesus who has the strength that I lack. And I say, but you do, God. You have strength. You have resources. Can I please borrow your smile? And by the time my girlfriend comes through the door with a cup of coffee and a happy good morning, I can give her a smile already fought for, already won straight from heaven. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And for that, I am deeply grateful. Johnny, a woman who has lived with, um, I think, unimaginable suffering for most of us, has this practice that I find so amusing. Whenever she gets on an elevator and the doors close, uh, and you know that riding an elevator is somewhat awkward, right? At least it is for me. I mean, you don't do you talk to people. You, of course, you have a polite hello and a nod, but you, you don't really, you know, you're only going to be on this thing for about five seconds, ten seconds. And so what do you do? Well, Johnny, Johnny is not afraid of awkwardness. In fact, she, she enjoys it evidently because once the doors close, she invites everyone on the elevator to join her in singing a hymn. You imagine what that's like, because as we said, it's already awkward, you're on the elevator, and, and now, to be perfectly honest, here's this quadriplegic right in the middle of the elevator, and for most of us, if we're not around that, that's going to be uncomfortable for us, isn't it, if we're being, being honest, and at least raise uncomfortable questions, what, what happened to her, why her, why not me, what, what's that like? And, 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 you know, you're on the elevator, and we all, what do we do? We just stare forward as if something riveting is happening right before our eyes and just hoping to get off the elevator soon and get on with our life. And imagine that the person who is suffering more than anyone interrupts that silence by saying, would you all join me in singing a hymn of praise to God? And then she begins to sing a familiar hymn. Imagine that response, what that would be like. Well, Habakkuk is also suffering. And here in chapter 3, he also invites us to sing a hymn of praise with him, to join him in glorifying God 
in song. We've now on week five of this six-week series in Habakkuk. We started this book. If you remember, if you've been around, we listened to Habakkuk's complaints to God concerning the sinfulness of God's people. He says God doesn't seem to be active to him. God's tolerating their wickedness. And so in conclusion, Habakkuk says to God, why do you idly look at wrong? God responds to Habakkuk saying, I'm not idle. I am acting. I'm going to send the Babylonians to destroy Judah, which they did, by the way, in 586 B.C. So this, of course, leads to more questions for Habakkuk, as we saw, that he wants to know how can God use these arrogant Babylonians to punish his people? God will answer that question throughout chapter 2. We consider that for a couple of weeks. The answer is, is robust and multifaceted. God, in some sense, well, not in some sense, he comes out and says, by the way, I'm going, to, I'm going to judge the Babylonians for their conquest of Judah, just as I'm going to judge everyone who is proud. And, but then he also, in the midst of that, he says, by the way, even though I'm judging Babylon and things look like they're chaotic, I'm going to establish my kingdom. And in fact, one day, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you can be part of that kingdom, Habakkuk. In fact, we all can if we trust in him. As God says, really, in the heart of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. And then at the end of God's response, there's an imitation. You see that in verse 20 of chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, Habakkuk, we're done with this conversation. No more questions, no more complaints, no more laments. It's time to close your mouth and trust me. And we find what happens is Habakkuk obeys. All of his protests, all of his complaints are silenced before this vision of God enthroned in heaven. And what's amazing is that though his circumstances have not changed from beginning to end, well, that's not accurate. His circumstances have gotten worse, right? He was first upset about the sinfulness of Judah. That remains, but now a conquering empire is coming. So things have gotten bad or worse for Habakkuk. And, the, and, and yet what we find at the end is the prophet is a radically different man. He in chapter 3 bears no resemblance to the man in chapter 1. Almost as in the life of Job. And Job at the end of his great suffering. He said, I heard rumors about you to God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I spoke of what I did not know. And see, we see Habakkuk here. He, nothing's changed in, in, in his circumstances, but his heart is radically different. He has been on this journey from fear to faith, from, from trial to trust, from complaint to contentment. And he gazes upon God, and now he begins to live, on, live by faith. See, his gaze has gone from the troubles below to the sovereign majesty of God above. He sees the difficulties of his life through God's ultimate triumph, God's victory, God's goodness. And all that's left for him to do is to worship. God has spoken to him, and he wants to worship God. But what's cool about this is that he invites us to join him to join in singing a hymn with him in praise of God in troubling times. I think this is important to consider as I've been sharing over these last weeks that at some point in your life, trouble will come. Some point in your life, your path is going to change and it will not be a decision in which you have made. At some point in your life, I think this happens for everyone. And if it happened for you, it's coming. Your dream is going to end. The thing that you've been pursuing, it's just, it's not going to happen 
And, th- and there's going to be an alteration. And, and it may seem to you, by your own understanding, that the circumstances of life contradict the character of God, the promises of God. And you will not understand how, how God can, can promise this and be like this, and yet my life is going like this. The question for us, in the midst of those times, can we praise God? Can we worship him? We can only if we live by faith. Times may be bad. The future may be worse. But the righteous will live by faith. And therefore, they can praise God even in troubling times. Now, praising God, of course, takes many forms. But for Habakkuk, it takes the form of a song. So consider, first of all, that Habakkuk, I think, encourages us in troubling times to sing of God's glory. Note verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk. Okay, so you just stop there. You note Habakkuk now is praying to God, now for a third time, by the way. Prayer, of course, at, at its core is simply speaking to God. That's what, what's prayer. At the, prayer is many things. We could spend months talking about prayer. But prayer at the very foundation is, is you talking to God. Typically, prayer is very simple. Typically, uh, prayer is extemporaneous. You know, typically, you're just telling God what's on your heart. Maybe you read the word. You're responding to God. But what we see here in chapter 3 is that prayer can also be formal. This is, is not an extemporaneous prayer. This is a, a composed prayer. Habakkuk collected his thoughts. He thought about all that God has said to him and, and, and what was about to happen to, to Judah, and he carefully composed this prayer. And by the way, Habakkuk is not alone. The book of Psalms is largely a collection of composed prayers. Hannah, when, when she prays in 1 Samuel 2, she has, that is clearly a composed prayer. Mary, when she prays her, her great man, Magnificent, that is a, a composed prayer. They, she has given forethought to what she wants to talk about about, uh, talk to God about. I bring this up because we as elders at Hamilton Baptist Church, when we are privileged to offer our pastoral prayer, they are typically composed prayers. They are, if you will, formal prayers. The the elders have studied the pastoral prayers in scripture. We took about six months a number of years ago and led us to conclude that giving deliberate forethought to what we want to pray in response to the scripture in which we will read before God's people is both wise and biblical. And we think Habakkuk is an example of that. Habakkuk composes this prayer, but it's more than a prayer, as you read on verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Sigionoth. Now, of course, we all know what a Sigionoth is, right? <laughs> Actually, no one knows what a Sigionoth is. That's why it's not translated. Um, we, we do, we are fairly confident, we being those people, not me, those people actually know things, um, fairly confident in knowing that this is a musical term. And um, many Hebrew scholars think it's a musical instruction that the music is supposed to be upbeat and exciting and triumphant, not, not reflective and um, meditative. This is confirmed if you look at the very end of this book, verse 19 at the very end. See what Habakkuk says. He concludes this and he says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. 
So uh, this is, you thought, you thought uh, choirs were invented by Baptists, right? Um, this is not. Look, it's right there in Habakkuk. 2,600 years ago, there's a temple choir. We see this fact throughout the book of Psalms. And so what Habakkuk is writing is not a personal song for him to sing, but it's a choral piece of music. It is to be sung by the choir with musical accompaniment in order to lead God's people in praise. Moreover, we know this is a song because three times we see the word Selah there. Again, we don't know what that word means. We know it is, we also find it 71 different times in the book of Psalms. It's the only other place that we will find it. Many have speculated that Selah is how they would indicate we're to pause the singing while the music continues in order for the singers to contemplate and meditate upon the truths in which they have just sung. And so it may be just a pause. We'll stop singing here for a moment. Think about these truths in which we have praised God. What this means is that Habakkuk writes this song and he intends for God's people to sing this song with him. And I, I think we're probably safe, though we're speculating, safe to speculate that this song, which he composed, was sung many times by the temple choir, perhaps, or by the people of God, even as Babylon approached. They, they sung as the shadow of suffering fell upon them, which raises the question. In fact, a question I asked my children last night as we looked at this passage. Why sing? Why sing it? Why not, why not just pray it? Why not just speak it? What do you gain by putting it in the form of song? Well, my children concluded, and I think they're right, that music is a way in which we engage our heart. So music, of course, should engage your mind when we're singing, but also engage your heart. Sometimes speaking doesn't engage your heart, but music often does. So like Saul's soul was calmed by David's harp, you'll remember. Augustine, uh, long ago, said, I perceive that our minds are more devoutly and earnestly elevated into a flame by holy words when they are sung than when they are not. I think that's the point of singing. The singing is to be an emotional event. It is to be a wholehearted event. We're to engage uh, not just our minds, but our hearts and our souls in it. I like how A.W. Tozer put it. As he said, he said, I say without qualification, after the sacred scriptures, the next best companion for the soul is sacred music. Sometimes our hearts are strangely stubborn and will not soften or grow tender no matter how much praying we do. It is often found that the singing of a good hymn will melt the ice jam and start the inward affections flowing again. There is, friends, power in singing. In fact, it's something Martin Luther uh, was aware of. In Martin Luther's day, and about five, almost 500 years ago to last year, 1517, as he started the Protestant Reformation, of course it was a theological reformation. But perhaps the greatest impact that Martin Luther had upon the people of God was writing his hymn book. In fact, for hundreds of years, the people of God had stopped singing. There was no such thing as congregational singing. If you would go to church, all you would hear, if you would hear it at all, would be the chants of the priests or the monks. And so the people of God had stopped singing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Martin Luther wrote this hymn book, and his, his hymnal has been said to be one of the most powerful missionary tools for actually correct doctrine as people begin to sing the truths. This is what God has wanted. right? He, his people have always sung his praises. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll find choirs, You'll find hymns. You'll find congregational singing. We have a book of Psalms, which is largely, no, not exclusively, a hymn book. And, and by the way, that was the beginning. You get to the end. You read the book of Revelation. You know what's happening. Chapter 14, I heard the voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder. What is sounding like thunder in heaven? Well, it is the people of God 
praising him as we read. And they were singing a song before the throne. So what you're going to discover when you get to heaven, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that there will be hundreds of millions of God's people singing about God's glory and God's power and God's grace and God's mercy and God's compassion on and on and on and forever shall be. So if they did that at the beginning and we do it at the end, what then should we do now? I think it's probably safe to conclude the people of God should sing praises to God. In fact, Ephesians 5.18 commands as much. Ephesians 5.18 is famous because... It's the verse which Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. A lot of debate as to what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit. It might be helpful to finish the sentence. Be filled with the Spirit, comma, not period, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So evidently, there's some connection with God coming and working powerfully in our lives with us praising Him. And so in times of trouble... Difficult times, hard times, scary times, you will need to engage your heart and you engage your heart in a God-ordained way by singing. You should pray to God in singing. You should do that alone. I don't know if you, as I practice, I sing to God alone. And I, by the way, I make sure I'm alone, alone, right? No, no, one, no one wants to hear that. I'm not sure God wants to hear it either, but of course he does. But, um, so, you know, I, I, it, I, it gets me going. I just want to worship you. I want to praise you. And certainly we should pray, sing when God's people gather. And if there's anyone here that refuses to sing when God's people gather, I think you should really search your heart as to what you are doing and why. You say, well, I don't, I don't like this kind of music. I don't, this is not the song for me or whatever that might be. Well, I would very humbly suggest if, if this is not a place in which you could sing praises to God, that you would do better to find a church in which you can you are called to praise God. It's not a question of your preference. It's a question of obedience to the divine commands of God. And so I lovingly encourage you to search your heart that we are to praise him in song as he instructs. Well, it's not all, of course, that Habakkuk says here. You know, we might think, okay, we're to, we're, to, we're to pray to God, and sometimes we do that in singing. Well, what should I pray? Well, that's covered, we've, I mean, that's throughout the book of Habakkuk, and we've considered that at length in our series here. But you notice that Habakkuk requests God's mercy in these troubling times, as you see in verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. So Habakkuk has heard of what God has done. He's going to actually recite what God has done from verses 3 through verse 15, which we'll consider in a moment. But I want, I want to be clear where Habakkuk heard about God. Where are the reports of God found? My friends are found in Scripture. And so Habakkuk clearly is, is understand, was hearing from God from Scripture, and I'm sure beyond that, through the stories that their forefathers have told them and passed it down to them. Psalm 78, for instance, says, Things from old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. So the Father is to pass down the work of God to the generations to come. That is our calling. And as Habakkuk considers the mighty activity of God in days past, he concludes there in verse 2, as you see, I fear you. So it's impacting him, and I'm in awe of you. I think you're incredible, mighty, and majestic. And because of that, he makes two requests here in verse 2. The first being that God would work again like he has done in the past. Note what he says. In the midst of the years, that's referring to his years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
So Habakkuk's saying, God, I've heard of what you have done. Do it in my day. I'm, he, so we're crying out to you to, to powerfully work in our years. Habakkuk says, I just don't want to read about it. I just want to hear stories about it. I want to live through it. I want to see it. In fact, this is what the psalmist does in Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. Next verse. Awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Right? This is what Habakkuk's doing. He's saying, God, I'm in awe of you. But why don't you do it again? Why don't you do it in my day like you did in days of old? I don't, you ever pray like that? You, you ever read the Bible and then just kind of in awe of what God has done and, and who he is, and you think, God, why not now? I mean, I read about how Christ came and healed us. God, why, why not now? Why don't you do that now? I heal about God's great victories and, 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 and uh, delivering his people. And you think, God, why, do it now. Do it in our days. Or you, you read about the revivals in Scripture that happen periodically to God's people. And you think, God, we need that now. You ever pray like that? God, restore the church to what it used to be. Restore the church to what it ought to be. Make us the people that you would, after your own heart, revive us. Do your work now in us. Could you imagine what that would be like if you went to work and like everybody or almost everybody knew and loved Jesus? Down your neighborhood, this Christian family after Christian family following after Christ and everyone following him like God did in days past, people repenting of sin, Families being united, hearts being transformed. God, you've done that in the past. You've awakened us in the past in revival now. For instance, in 1904, at 1 a.m. in the morning, when Evan Roberts was woken up with a powerful desire to pray. And instead of doing what probably most of us would do, try to go back to sleep, this 26-year-old, he got out of bed and opened the Bible, and for the next three hours, he read and prayed. The next day, he was woken at 1 a.m. with this powerful desire to pray. Got up, read the, opened the Bible, and for the next three hours, he read and prayed. Did the night, next night, night after that, night after that, night after that. You know, you can imagine what's going on in Robert's own heart as he seeks God in this way. There's this powerful revival taking place in him. He's being drawn close to God. He's, he's more committed to God, more in love with God. And, and God is just doing this mighty work. In fact, he, he began to pray for his nation. In fact, he, he began to, to ask for a revival in his nation. And specifically, he actually asked, God, would you save 100,000 people? Would you bring them to Christ? Would they find salvation and mercy in Christ? Well, finally, he had to kind of speak of what God was doing in his life. After months of doing this, he, he went to his pastor and says, Pastor, God, I need you to know that God's doing a powerful work in my life. He's drawing me close to him. And I wonder if I could just talk to the congregation about this. So his pastor, on a Monday night service, said to Roberts, I'll give you five minutes. That sounds like a pastor, doesn't it, right? <laughs> right? So Roberts was content with that. He got up and he said, told the people, hey, I just want to let you know that God's, I feel like God's waking me up at 1 a.m. He's been doing it every night for weeks and weeks, and I've just been spending hours in prayer, and I'm just so in love with God right now, and God's working in my life. And then he exhorted the people of God to do three things. He said, I feel God would have me tell you that you need to repent of sin. I feel God would have me tell you you need to obey God promptly. And I think God would tell me have me tell you that you need to publicly identify with Jesus. In less than five minutes, he shared all that. He sat back down. And there was a stirring 
going on in that church. In fact, they decided we should meet tomorrow night to seek after God. So they did. And then they met the next night, and the next night, and the next night. Soon another church heard of what they're doing, and they began to meet nightly, and then other churches joined, and other churches joined, and the churches were packed, confessing sin, praying for the lost, and over the next nine months, 100,000 people in the country of Wales came to Christ. It's known as the Welsh Revival in 1904 and 1905. And Habakkuk, he says, God, I hear about that. Why not now? Do it again. Do it in our years. You ever want that? Oh, that God's people would yearn for God to work in our day and not simply be content the fact that he worked in the past, but say, God, why not now to call out to him, God, we need you to work? Oh, Habakkuk saying, revive it, God. Do, I heard of that. Now do it in our day. And then he has this second request there in verse two. You see at the end, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Well, he doesn't pray, by the way, that wrath won't come in the form of the Babylonians. He knows they deserve it. But that doesn't stop him from asking that when you come and judge us, will you be merciful? Will your judgment be tempered with mercy? By the way, I think God answers that prayer when he saves this boy named Daniel and these men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they survive the judgment of Babylon and are carried off into exile, and there they would powerfully testify to the Lord. I think God answers this prayer when he saves this prophet named Ezekiel, who would have this powerful prophetic ministry in exile in Babylon. I think God answers this prayer in wrath, remember mercy, when 70 years later, God sends the people of God back to the promised land to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and rebuild the people of God. I, I, think, I think God answers this prayer that the men and women of faith outlived their oppressors in this nation of Babylon. In fact, I wonder if God was answering this prayer in wrath, remember mercy, 600 years later on a little hill outside of Jerusalem called Calvary. When the Lord Jesus was pinned to a cross, God was merciful in judgment. Not merciful to Jesus. Jesus received God's unmitigated wrath for sins he did not commit. But he was merciful to us. Merciful to Habakkuk. Merciful to all who live by faith. For in the cross, that's where we find mercy. We all deserve the justice of God. We all deserve a Babylon to, to come and, and to get us. And, and we will not receive it in that way. We will not receive judgment from God if we are in Christ. Because all of the judgment that is due for you and for all your sin has fallen on Jesus so that God can be merciful to you. In fact, I think he answers this prayer. Habakkuk prayed 2,600 years ago. Every time a sinner bows their knee and says, God, will you be merciful to me? Will you give me your grace? I wonder if you've ever prayed that. I wonder if you've ever asked your creator for mercy. And Jesus has come into this world and he's died upon the cross, the Son of God, to bear the wrath of God for sinners, to bear our punishment. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And now with nail-pierced hands, he offers all who would receive it, the mercy of God. Salvation. The Bible says if we place our faith, yield our life to Christ, God's Son, turn away from our rebellion and surrender ourselves to him, that God will indeed give us this mercy. He will indeed answer this prayer from Habakkuk in your life. He prays for mercy. 
And lastly, in these troubling times, in this passage, you see he remembers God's work. Remembers God's work. After asking God to revive his work, he then goes on to remember God's work. And what he does largely, though not exclusively, he recalls the Old Testament understanding of salvation, which was the redemption from their bondage in Egypt, taken into the land of promise after a period of wilderness wandering. And he, he's going to focus on this. And, and we're going to read this prayer. We're going to work quickly through these verses. But I, 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 what I'm hoping you'll, you're kind of, your radar will be up for is how different Habakkuk prays than perhaps you pray. Uh, I don't know when the last time you, you've ever said God in prayer, God, you, remember when you came from Taman? Right? I, I don't know if you ever said, God, remember when you stripped your bow from its sheath and your spear was glittering? Now, again, this is a composed prayer. Much thought went into it. But I wonder if we would gain in our life of prayer that, that when, when we pray in the midst of trouble, we would not only just pray about the trouble. Right? God heal. God provide a job. God help her to say yes. You know, whatever it is, right? That, that it, it, do all that, of course. But that even in that prayer, we recall to our hearts who God is and what he has done. As Habakkuk does, starting in verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. Taman and Mount Paran are the desert area around Sinai. Uh, this is where God's people found refuge from Egypt, where God's community was formed, where God shaped them and formed them. And Habakkuk is saying, God, I heard about the day in which you delivered your people from bondage. I heard about that glorious freedom you gave them. I heard, I heard you spoke to them from the mountain and you gave them your guidance and your righteousness and your, and your, your blessing upon them. Do it in our day. He continues to sing in verse 4, his brightness was like the light, uh, light rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plagues followed and his heels. This is a reference to both his brilliant appearing at Sinai and the plagues that he used to bring them there, showing that God has power over nature and nations. In verse 6 we read, he stood and measured the earth. He, I love this verse here, he looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land in Midian did tremble. He's God, you're awesome. When you show up, the earth shake. Even the ancient mountains that, they, that, that survived millennia, millennia, they, you, they, they cower before you, God. When God came to Mount Sinai, which is the symbol of strength and power and permanence, the mountain begins to yield to the presence of God. And the nations, too. Do you see that? He says, you looked, <laughs> and the nations shake. Just a look from God. And Egypt shakes, and Canaan trembles in fear, and Cush and Midian are, are shattered. Even as Rahab testified, as the people of God came in to the land of Canaan, that her people were melting in fear, and their courage had failed because of what they have heard from this God. Habakkuk says, look, I've, I've heard that creation falls at your feet when you come. I heard that empires bend to you, kings and armies. I heard that all boasting ends when people come face to face with you. All self-importance fades away in your presence. Do it in our day. Come in power so that we too can bow before you and be filled with awe and tremble and fear and call out for mercy. 
It's at this point in his song that he, the, the song kind of takes a, a new tone. That is, he goes from singing about God to singing to God. You'll notice the rest of the song are all in the second person. Rather than God did this, you God did this. By the way, I don't, you probably didn't notice it. I noticed it. Two of our songs, we did that. We started out singing about God, and then we, we moved to singing directly to God, which is exactly what Habakkuk is doing, as you see in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? He asked this rhetorical question, were you mad and all these bodies of water? Of course, the answer is no. But when God's people needed saving, God actually used the waters to do so. For instance, when they were hemmed in by the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt, men and women, young and old, healthy and sick, and nothing to do, no, no way to protect themselves or deliver themselves. God parted the sea, sent a wind to dry out the land in order that the nation may walk through. And they walked through, escaping from their enslavement to this marauding people. And you know what they did immediately upon reaching the safety of the shore on the other side? They began to sing. They began to worship God. And hundreds of thousands of people just began to praise God for what he has done. He says, I heard that the day you defeated your enemy and saved your people, I heard that there were millions of your people just worshiping you. Do that in our day. Oh, and then the day they brings them into the promised land, the land of rest. The problem was there was a raging Jordan River at flood stage, perhaps three miles wide. They're standing between them and the land of promise. And God says, okay, here's what you do. The priests are going to take the ark, which kind of represents the presence of God, and you're just going to walk into the river. And, what, and as you walk into the river, I will stop the river and I will carry the people into the promised land. And, and friends, that takes faith because if God doesn't stop the river, the priests drown and God goes kayaking down the Jordan River, right? That's a bad day for the people of God. And what do they do? They, they stepped. He acted. The water parted. He takes them into paradise. And Habakkuk says, oh God, I want to see something like that. I want you to act in such a way. He then begins to sing about God's power. In fact, God is a warrior. Know what he says in verse 8. When you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Just God, you fought, fought to save your people. All right, God, you came on your chariot of salvation, he says. You come to conquer those who stand against you. God, you're a warrior. By the way, this is very unpopular in our day. We don't like to think of God as a warrior. Right? We, we, don't, we don't think of God as a judge. We don't, we don't think God ever gets angry. In, in, in the Western mind, God is nice and sweet. Right? You know, God's up in heaven wearing a sweater and a smile. Right? It's like a pet that you put on your lap and makes you feel comfortable and happy. And, you know, there's a little positive encouragement in your life. Going to make your life a little bit better. That's, that's what God does. He's kind, of, he's kind of a life enhancer, but he's certainly not a warrior. But you see him in Scripture. Oh, my friends, he is positive and encouraging, certainly. He is gracious and long-suffering and loving. But it comes to a point where he comes with vengeance. And we see it again and again. And Habakkuk says, I heard that you, you come upon your stallion. You fire, fire arrows upon the nations of the earth. Don't you see, God, you're being neglected today? Don't you see your name is being dragged through the mud? Don't you understand that your people are a punchline? 
that you're mocked left and right, and it happens all around us? Will you show up and vindicate your name? Will you come and save your people? And then Habakkuk begins to sing about all these cosmic events in creation. So you see in verse 11, The sun and the moon stood in their planes. At the light of your arrows they sped. The flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty warriors, waters. I'm not sure if there's, if there's a single event in which he is singing about. It's an awesome picture of God using the earth and water and fire for his saving purposes. And Babylon is coming. Judgment is coming. And Habakkuk sings, he prays, you can still save your righteous. You can still save those who trust in you. I mean, you, could, you, th- you think about, when I mean, you think about this passage, it, about God, the Lord coming and impacting the mountains and the waters and, and, and impacting the sun and the moon, it seems to me to anticipate the Lord's return. And when Jesus Christ returns, we sang about it this morning, didn't we? He's coming in the same imagery, riding a stallion, Revelation 19 tells us. He's coming for victory. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, and I've reminded you time and again through the book of Habakkuk, as I think God continues to point this out, that as trouble grows, even in our nation or your own life, look for his coming. He will one day appear in clouds with lightning, leading the host to heaven as he comes in triumph. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you are here. But please understand that we Christians believe that God is holy. We think he's good and righteous and merciful, kind long-suffering and compassionate, but we think he is holy as well, and he will judge those who will refuse the mercy that he extends them through the death of his son. I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the word of God, if you will not yield your life to Jesus, you are his enemy. And if you are his enemy, his arrows will find you on that great day. If you were to stand before God, what would you say to him? Would you plead your own goodness? I'm good. This should help me. This should, this should allow you to accept me. It's not because we're good that God put Jesus on the cross. He didn't die for our goodness. He died for our badness. He died in order to make a way for us to receive him. You may not like his way, but it's his way. You're not God. He is. And I would encourage you to consider and to pray and to think about humbling yourself and receiving his son as your savior and your, his Lord. The Bible says if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this seems to be a great invitation as we consider here God's mighty acts and past. You notice that this song is a rehearsal of what God has done in days long ago. He's not singing, in other words, of, of comforting ideas. In the troubling times, he's not writing a song about every cloud has a silver lining. Right? He's, not, he's not singing, you know, we're, you know, after winter comes spring. He's, he's singing about what God has done in history, and he finds his strength in what God has done in the history for, to face the troubles of today, because God doesn't change. And so the memory of God's past acts, I think, plays a vital role for God's people in the days in which we now live. 
They certainly did in the life of Joseph Tan, who was an exiled Romanian pastor. He became a Christian in Romania in his youth, in the middle of a communist reign. And, and he actually grew in his faith, despite the communist efforts to thwart Christianity. He felt called to the ministry, and he entered a seminary, a Baptist seminary, by the way, in Bucharest. One day he was given a book, a, a theological book. is written by an American theologian, by a friend. And Tan knew nothing of this uh, author, but he was just delighted to have a book, a theological book, be very rare in communist Romania. And he began to read it eagerly. And the man who wrote the book was arguing that all the biblical events are not actually actual history, but they're myth. It's metaphor. And the guy said, well, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It's just a metaphor for loving other people. And, of course, Ton was, uh, was uh, amazingly upset by this. He went to his professor, and he says, this is what I'm reading. Is this true? And the professor looked at the book, not having read it, and said, this man is a great theologian. If he says so, it is so. And Ton wrote about that day. He said, he went back to his room, and he says, at that moment, I saw my faith, like scaffolding, in my insides, going down in pieces. Everything in me was demolished. I went to my room and said, it is risky to preach the gospel here in Romania. I was ready to risk my life for truth, but for metaphors, I will risk nothing. He promptly left seminary. It was years later that he found his way back to God. It was years later that he did risk his own life. But he did so. I, I, I think his point, I think, is, is, is important. Do we, would we risk our life for metaphor? I mean, why would you risk your freedom? Why would you risk your health? Why would you risk your family for some type of myth? But for truth, he says, but for facts, for reality, a man can sacrifice. In fact, a man can even die. Let me say to you this morning that I believe with all my heart that the events that are described in the Bible are true. This is not fiction. This is not fable. This is not a series of inspiring stories to get you through the day. God did deliver the people of God from Egypt through mighty acts. God did bring them into the promised land through mighty miracles. And God did, in Jesus Christ, die for sin and sinners. And three days later, rose biblically, uh, uh, excuse me, bodily, historically, and physically from the dead. And if these things are true, then we, like Habakkuk, can live and rejoice, and my friends, even die in our faith in our great God. It is true. And I believe that understanding this and rehearsing this in your heart will do you great good for the troubling days that lie in your future, or even in your presence. Could you imagine Habakkuk, his ruthless neighbors, imagine you're him, ruthless neighbors are coming to destroy Judah, and you happen to be strapped to the target, right? They're, They're going to get you too, or we're going to be swept away true. And then he remembers God says, no, my righteous ones live by faith. You need to live by faith in that trouble. How? How? How can you strengthen that faith? What can you do to gird yourself up, knowing that, knowing that God is who he is and God will do what he has says? Where do you, where do you go to, to find strength for your faith? Well, Habakkuk, you know, where did he go? He went to God, what God has done in the past. And he goes back and understands the, um, and contemplates their understanding of redemption. That is their, their release from bondage in Egypt. What God did to save them. And he thinks about it. And he thinks about it. And he thinks about it. And he thinks about it until it penetrates his heart. 
until it roots itself deeply in him, and he prays, and he, and he sings about it, just as the psalmist did. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who's the psalmist talking to? Well, it's not to God. That's not a prayer. It's, it's not to the people of God. It's not a sermon. He's talking to his soul. Soul, remember what God has done. And then he goes on and lists all God's benefits. My friends, we need to connect what God has done in the past to help us face our present. And we do this by remembering and recalling and reciting and rejoicing and meditating upon the work that God has already shown us. If you are discouraged in life, if you are exhausted, if you are afraid, if you are in pain, open your Bibles and read about what God has done. That's not all you do. Please don't take this too far. Consider what God has done. Meditate on it. Pray about it. Rejoice in it. Your God is the God who makes the mountains crumble. Your God makes the nations shake. That's your God. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. When God shows up to help you, mountains fall, nations tremble, seas part, the sun stops. That's your defender. That's your savior. That's your help. You need to trust in him. So Habakkuk thinks about this, and he says, okay, this is who you are, and I need that to strengthen my faith to face today and to face tomorrow. I think your ability to face trial with strength and poise and trust is determined on on the degree in which you gaze upon God. In particular, I think we should gaze upon the work that he has done to save us, right, and how he has redeemed us, the life and the death and the the resurrection of our Lord. I mean, is is this... Does this, chapter 3, in any way resemble the way you pray in trembling times? Yes, pray for healing. Please do. Pray for deliverance. But remember who God is and what he has done. And allow that to lead you in calling out to God for help. Remember what he's done in Jesus. In fact, I I think God is hinting at it here in Habakkuk. It's not clear, but there's an interesting passage in verse 13. Look what he says. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Well, who's his anointed? That's singular, by the way. In fact, you know what that word is, anointed in Hebrew? It's Messiah. It's just the Hebrew word Messiah. So he's singing, you went out to save your people, uh, you went out to save the Messiah. Or, by the way, Greek, the, the Greek word Christ is just the Hebrew word Messiah. So God saves his people, and God saves his Messiah. Well, how? Well, we'll read on in verse 13. He says, You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So the, God, he's singing, Okay, God, you have destroyed the leader of wickedness through your people, in particular through the Messiah. Now, who's the head of the wickedness? Is it the, maybe it's the Babylonian king, perhaps, in some sense? I, I would say, yeah. But after the Babylonians, you had the Persians. And after the Persians, you had the Greeks. And after the Greeks, you had the Romans. And, and on and on we go. I mean, who's the real head of the house of wickedness? 
Well, it's the same person who God said in Genesis 3 that the Messiah, or the seed of the woman, would crush his head, just as Habakkuk sings of here. It's Satan. And so God is saying, okay, you're saving your Messiah. You're going to crush Satan. How? Now, we're going to have to do a little digging. It'll just take me like two minutes, so hold on. But we're going to look at grammar, so I know that all gets us excited. But look in verse 14, okay? okay? You have to follow the pronouns closely, okay? I'll help you. Don't worry. We'll get through it. He so said, you, that's the Lord, you, God, pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. So notice God is piercing someone with arrows, but God is not using his arrows. He's using the person's arrows to whom he is piercing. You see this? You, it doesn't say you pierced with your arrows the head of his warriors. You pierced with his arrows arrows, the head of his warriors. Well, who's the his? Whose arrows is he using? Well, here comes another big grammar word. What's the antecedent? What's, what, well, who is he just talking about? The head of the house of wickedness. So God uses Satan's arrows to pierce Satan, to bring about Satan's defeat. Well, what are Satan's arrows? Well, Satan's arrows were fired against the anointed one, against the Messiah. When Jesus came, Satan led the opposition to, to kill the Messiah. Satan had him killed, and yet God saves his anointed through the resurrection, as Habakkuk sings about, and in so doing, defeats the devil, the leader of the house of wickedness, with the very arrows in which the devil fired at the Messiah. My friends, that's worth remembering. That's worth singing about. And it's through that truth that we may pray, even now, in wrath, remember mercy. Our Father, we rejoice in your mercy. We are so thankful for it. Even if it cost your anointed to receive the fiery arrows from our enemy, the leader of the house of wickedness, And yet you saved him, and by saving him, you saved us. We have mercy through it. God, why would anyone not want mercy? I imagine it is only because they don't think they need it. I pray you would humble them. We pray. Yet they would see their great need for the forgiveness of the sins in which they have committed And that the only way to access it is through the death and resurrection of your son. Bring them to faith. Do that for their eternal good and for your glory. And God, for those of us who are struggling today, I know there are many. And for those of us who will struggle tomorrow, will you help us to face that in faith? Will you help us to even be able to sing to you in the midst of it? Will you help us, Father, by remembering who you are and what you have done to stand strong in our trust that our God is good even in the storm? And ultimately, by your great wisdom, you will deliver your people one way or another. Help us to live by faith for you have done so much for us to trust in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.